We'll now be reading from God's Word. We'll be reading from Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 26. That can be found on page 941 in the Bibles around you. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hey, good morning, y'all. My name is Steve. I'm the lead pastor. Thanks for joining us this morning as uh, we continue in the book of Romans. We are in our final week in this paragraph, and some of you are like, yes, and some of you are like, yes. Um, uh, I hope you have come to fall in love with this paragraph as much as I have, that, that its richness has in some ways enriched you. This is a phenomenally beautiful paragraph. Um, Romans 1.16, we looked at this many, many, many months ago, but Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel of God, for it is the power of God to salvation for all who would believe, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Um, that was kind of Paul's opening statement that finds its conclusion, not conclusion, but its explanation in this paragraph. I am not ashamed of the gospel of God. It is my boast, in other words. It is my boast, which was a radical comment because to the Jews, this idea of a crucified Savior was deeply offensive. The law said anybody who was hung on a tree was cursed by God. And to say that the Messiah was the one who was hung on this tree was offensive and shameful. Uh, The Roman execution was deliberately humiliating. It was designed to be the most excruciating form of death and the most humiliating form of death, right? The word excruciating actually comes from crucifixion. And, And it was designed to humiliate the person being killed. And so to the Roman mind, this idea that this man on the cross was somehow to be reverenced, worshipped, honored, followed, and believed in was a point of shame. I am not ashamed of the gospel of God. Paul was saying what mankind finds shameful is the very expression of the glory of God, and what mankind finds glorious is actually an expression of our shame. And as we dig into this paragraph, we see how God displays His glory through the shameful display of his son being crucified on a cross. And as we looked into this paragraph, we saw that that this was precipitated by our common problem. All have sinned and are lacking the glory of God, right? There are none righteous, no, not one. There are not good guys, bad guys, and God. There's just God and bad guys. That's it. There, There are no levels right? There are, there, are no, there are no measures of right. No, it, it, all have sinned and fall short or are lacking the glory of God. And then we looked at God's incredible solution by looking at three critical words. We looked at redemption, this word, this beautiful word, redemption, in our paragraph that, that at the heart of it is this idea of lutron or a, a ransom price that is paid. 
that we were purchased with a ransom price. And that ransom price came through propitiation, this word that means satisfaction, that that God satisfied the righteous demands of justice against our sin. And then this beautiful word, imputation, that He did it through the imputing or the crediting of our sin to Christ. And as a result, when we believe in Jesus, God's righteousness to us, Christ's obedience to us, it's not just the removal of guilt, it is the full credit of obedience. That when we believe in Jesus, everything that was wrong has been credited to Christ, and everything that was right about Christ has been credited to us. And then we saw last week how this whole thing, this whole thing was to demonstrate, to manifest, to make known the righteousness of God, that God is a just God who desperately wants to justify sinners, that He is a God of righteousness, and He desperately wants to declare unrighteous people righteous. And so He took the burden upon Himself to pay the price. He took the task upon Himself to to be our hero, to become our substitute, to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. And as a result, God has won for us the most incredible blessing ever given to mankind. And this blessing is embodied in this message we call the gospel. The word gospel literally means, evangelion is the Greek word, it means good news or victorious uh, proclamation. It is the good news that our price has been paid, our Our greatest debt has been paid, our our greatest problem has been solved, our greatest blessing has been given. This morning, as we finish up in this paragraph, I want to talk about how God makes this incredible blessing available to us. Because what we see is, is, is that it is by grace through faith. We hear that so much, right? These words, we, we use them so much in church. We use them so much in, in Christian circles that, that it's so simple. And that's the challenge because it becomes a little too common. Um, it's like the park ranger who works in Yosemite Valley. Yosemite Valley is, is a valley in California that I absolutely love. When you pull into Yosemite Valley, the walls, you have, you have two to 3,000 foot sheer granite walls on both sides of this verdant valley, green, glowing with a river flowing through the middle of it. It is one of the most gorgeous places on the face of the earth. And that is, that is not hyperbole. I am not exaggerating. And yet the park rangers who work there every single day eventually just pull in and stop looking up at the walls. And stop being awed by the beauty of their surroundings. They're thinking about their tasks. They're thinking about their jobs. They're thinking about stupid hikers they're going to have to rescue. They're thinking about, about rats. Um, they're thinking about all the things that, that they have to deal with in the valley. So they drive in and they don't even look up. Sometimes familiarity kills wonder. And I'm afraid that that is what's happened with this very, very beautiful phrase, by grace through faith. It is full of wonder. And the reality is it is full of scandal. And so this morning I hope to open our eyes 
a little bit to both. Last week, we saw that the central focus of the paragraph is righteousness, that that's the key word of this paragraph that is used throughout in both, in, in both its verb and noun form. So justify, just, uh, righteous, they're all the same, the same word. It is the central word of the paragraph. But there's another critical theme being introduced in this paragraph, and I want to highlight it by showing it to you again by, by highlighting some words. So I'll put the paragraph back up behind me. And I want you to see that there are five critical words that are woven together in this paragraph in a beautiful way. Faith and grace. Faith bookends the paragraph. There are two mentions of faith at the beginning and two at the end. And right at the heart of the paragraph is this declaration of grace. All of this glorious work of of God um, sending a Savior, a substitute who would pay our ransom price that would satisfy uh, uh, righteousness on our behalf, who, who, who would be imputed, uh, receive our imputed sin that we might receive as imputed righteousness, that, that God might be just in the justifier. All of this incredible blessing is made available to us by grace through faith, right? Imputation is the transaction, Right? My record is credited to Christ, and Christ's obedience is, is credited to me. Right? But the terms of this transaction are clear. On God, God's part, grace, and on my part, faith. Now, the word grace is only mentioned once in this paragraph, but that doesn't in any way minimize its importance. In some ways, it actually increases its importance or, or, or its beauty in this paragraph. Definitely doesn't reduce its power. This little word sits at the very center of this paragraph uh, like the crowning jewel. It is like a bright gem of love shining out of this golden crown of righteousness. Grace. Grace. Grace as a gift, it says. You're justified as, a, as grace by a gift. As a gift, that phrase translates a single Greek word, dorion, um, which is an adverb which means gratuitous. As a gift, right? It means as a gift, gratuitous. We are justified by God's gratuitous grace, by His lavish grace. It is not doled out in measured amounts. God is not stingy with His grace. It is not distributed uh, based on your merit or your deserving. God doesn't look at you and say, you get one measure of grace and you deserve a little bit more. God doles out His gratuitous grace. The only motivation for the giving of the grace is the unlimited love of God for the unlovable. It is not given based on merit. It is not given to some more than others. It it is gratuitous. All have sinned and lacked the glory of God. And all can be justified by His gratuitous grace. We are not justified by our good works. We are not justified by our merit. We are not justified by our religious performance or our self-control or our self-improvement projects. We are justified by His gratuitous grace. Grace. Grace is a word that means unmerited favor. Unearned love. That's what grace means. Grace is, is unmerited, undeserved favor unearned love. You guys, this is ridiculously counterintuitive for us. 
Because the reality is everything in life tells us that love is, in fact, conditional. Let's be honest. If you want to be loved, you have to be lovable. And if you don't believe me, try being ridiculously unlovable to everybody around you and find out what happens. Yeah, you're not going to have very many people left, if any. Because the reality is, in life, in human life, um, we're continually seeking to win the favor of others. And we stand in another person's favor insofar as, as we have become attractive to them. That's reality, right? That's just reality. I, oh, no, Steve, I'm a person of unconditional love. No, you're not. Not even close, right? How many people do you, do you have around you that absolutely drive you crazy and, and yet you continue? You're like, all of them. Okay, maybe. But I'm telling you, you get something out of it. You get something out of it. Because human love is conditional, and everything in life teaches us that to be loved, we must be lovable. To be accepted, we must be acceptable. To have favor, we have to in some way have merited it. Grace is ridiculously counterintuitive. Grace is God's love poured out gratuitously, not based on our merit not based on our, 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 our deserving it or earning it or, or, or in any way provoking it. And, and you know what? This is really, really good, good news because you know why? God doesn't need you. Like you need people and people need you. And so we can have this transaction that we call love, right? Like I can be useful to you and you can be useful to me. I can be attractive to you and you can be attractive to me. I, I, can, be, I can be helpful to you and you can be helpful to me. And we can have friendships and we can have romances and we can have all of these things. But if your, your salvation was dependent on your being useful to God, you'd be completely hopeless because God doesn't need you. He is completely self-sufficient. In his very nature, he is a trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, three who's one what, eternal community. He is not just the uh, uh, idea of love. He is the eternal expression and experience of love. He needs nothing outside of himself. So there's absolutely no way we could make ourselves useful or attractive or necessary to God. For us to be loved by God, it must be an expression of unmerited favor. And you know why God loves us? Because He wants to. Because He chooses to. Not because He has to. Not because He needs to. But because in the very nature of God Himself is love. And love gives. And love serves. And love sacrifices. At the very center of the universe is a God who is love. And because He is love, He gives. That's grace. That's grace. Now, as we talked about, God's grace, while it has absolutely freed us, it is gratuitous. It comes to us as a gift. It came at a ridiculous cost, right? We've talked about this, and that's why I actually like this definition of grace. It's an acronym, um, so it's really easy to remember. God's riches at Christ's expense, right? G-R-A-C-E. Uh, it is unmerited favor, but, but what we find in grace are God's riches poured out to us, but they come to us at Christ's 
expense. It, it is free to us, but it was not free to him. The price was paid, and I get all the benefit. We are justified by God's gratuitous grace. We are saved by God's gratuitous grace. That's, the, that's God's part, right? I'm saved by grace, and I'm saved through faith. There's only one way to take hold of this incredible gift. There's only one way that, that I can take advantage of this incredible grace, and that is to respond and receive it through faith. In fact, that seems to be the primary emphasis that Paul is making uh, which is important to know because the rest of chapter 3 and all of chapter 4 uh, are dedicated to an exploration of faith because this is um, the critical way in which uh, we take hold of grace. Grace is mentioned once, faith is mentioned four times. It is, it is the bookends of the paragraph. Right? In verse 22, the righteousness of God can be ours through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Verse 25, the grace of God is received through faith. Verse 26, God is just because of what Jesus did, and He's also the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now, we do see the English word faith used three times and the English word believe used once, uh, but that's a, that's a translation little trick. It's actually the same word. Um, uh, they're just a noun and verb form. And in English, we use two different words for that because there is no verb form of faith. You can't go faith something. Um, you believe it, right? It's, it's, it's pistis, that's faith. Pisteo is, is the verb, right? It's the same word. There is no distinction, right? There's no distinction between faith and believe. If you hear people trying to make some kind of biblical distinction between the two, um, just ignore them, uh, because it's one word, right? It is one word. You are saved by faith for all who believe, right? For him to say that sentence in, in verse 22 indicates just how much he's trying to emphasize it. He, he, is, like, he is like, I'm not just going to say you're saved by faith, or you're justified by faith. I'm going to emphasize it by saying, use the noun in the verb form, right? It's, 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 you're, you're justified by faith for all who believe, right? It is a gift of grace to be received through faith. God is just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. It is hard to overemphasize just how important this little Greek word is. It is the only word used in the entire New Testament to describe how we take hold of grace. It is the only word used in the entire New Testament. It's not just important in the book of Romans, and it's not just important in the broader uh, uh, letters of Paul. It is the only word in the entire New Testament used to describe how we take hold of grace. In fact, it's used so often, I think, it's easy for us to notice how little time we spend actually defining it. It's in one of those words that has become so common that we, we just kind of take it for granted and we don't really think about what, what actually does this word mean, right? We have these fuzzy definitions that lead to fuzzy applications. Some talk about faith as if it were an act of the will, right? You'll, you'll hear people say things like, well, you just, need to, you just need to commit your life to Christ, 
right? That's what it means. God, God reaches out to you in grace, and what you need to do is commit your life to Christ, or, or you need to uh, make Jesus Lord of your life, right? God reaches out to you in grace, and what you need to do is just make Jesus Lord of your life. What they've done is they've defined faith as an exertion of the will. I will commit my life to Christ. I, I will make Jesus Lord of my life. Some talk about it as if faith were um, uh, an expression of deep emotion, right? You just need to ask Jesus into your heart. You need to make Jesus your forever friend, right? That's the, that was always cute, BFF, right? Just make Jesus your BFF, right? You just need to have this deep emotional response, because true faith is, 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 is having this, it's rooted in, in, here's the thing, you guys. The problem with, with these fuzzy definitions of faith is that they turn faith into something we do. It turns faith into a work that we need to do well enough to earn grace. I asked a guy one time who, at the end of his presentation, said that we had to commit our lives to Christ. And I was like, man, let me ask you something. How much of my life do I need to commit? Well, all of it. Have you done that? Like, have you committed all of your life to Christ? All of it? Well, it's more to do with intention than, than action. You need, to, you need to just have the intention of making Jesus Lord of your life. As long as you have the intention, then God counts it. Really? Are you telling me that right now you have the honest and sincere intention to commit every aspect of your life to Christ. You're not withholding anything from Jesus right now. You don't have any area of sin you're trying to protect. You don't have any area in your life where you're trying to get the fullness of life apart from the God who gives it. Not, you, just, you're, you, know, like you just kind of accidentally sin? Well, no. Then how do you do it good enough? How do you, how do, you do that good enough? How do you commit enough? How do you submit enough? How do you, how do you make Jesus Lord of your life enough? How do you ask Jesus into your heart hard enough to actually make it effective? It turns faith into an impossible work. When I first became a believer, um, I got involved in youth work. I think that's very common <laughs> um, you get this young believer who's all full of excitement and can't stop talking about Jesus, and they're like, go work with the kids. Um, and, and so um, I'm working with, with these, these high school students uh, who had been raised in Christian homes, came from a very, very, um, just a very, very Christian background, Christian subculture, and um, I just kept running up against this weird apathy to the message of the gospel. Like, 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 oh, we've seen it all, we've heard it all. And I'm like, you know, Jesus talks about um, hearing the truth often with the metaphor of seeing. Let those who have eyes to see, see, and ears to hear, hear. Like, there's a way to see the truth that you actually see it. There's a way to hear it that you actually hear it. Like, I'm looking at this thing going, this is kind of impressive. Like, holy cow, this is great news. And they're like, yeah. Been there, done that, heard that, saw that. And I, it was kind of mystifying to me, to tell you the truth. Um, 
And so I started having them tell me their, their, their stories. You know, we used to call them testimonies back in the day, their faith stories. You know, like, like how do you, you know, you say you have this relationship with God. How'd you get it? Where'd you, where'd, and they started telling these stories. And there was a lot of commonality. Like it was either a, a youth camp or this big uh, uh, rally at church or often um, one of those go-away camps, you know, where you, you go and you spend a week. And at the end of the, the week, after they've been feeding you sugar and giving you two hours of sleep a night, they put you all around this campfire and they tell you stories of hell. And you don't want to burn like this fire, do you? No! Then ask Jesus into your heart. So a lot of them had this testimony, this campfire experience where after being, after being exhausted for a week and completely run down, they were, they were if you could, literally, I'm not even making this up, like, like, do you know that on your ride home, you can get into a car accident and die? Do you know right now your heart could stop beating and you could die? Do you know right now a meteor could fall from heaven and you could die? Do you want to die and go into eternity completely exposed? You better ask Jesus into your heart. I was like, okay, that's not exactly how I'd present the gospel. Okay. And then, and then somebody said something that actually this sparked my imagination. One guy was like, yeah, I've asked Jesus into my heart like six times. What? And then I'm like, all right, how many of you have asked Jesus into your heart more than once? How many of you have committed your life to Christ more than once? We call it recommitment. I learned something pretty profound in that moment. Their faith had become a work, and they were putting their trust in that work instead of in the Christ who saves. And as a result, when they felt renewed fear and exposure... They just assumed they didn't do the work good enough. So they went and did it again. And again. And again. And in the process, they had become inoculated to the true beauty and the power of the gospel. They had stopped being able to see the wonder of the beauty of the love of God because they had never focused on it to begin with. It had been purely a focus on, on a means to an end. How do I avoid hell and what do I need to take hold of to get there? And so their focus was on what they did for God, not what God did for them. Jesus wasn't a glorious Savior who had won their hearts and captured their imaginations. He was a means to an end. And they didn't want to go to hell, so they said the magic prayer. They had put their faith in their faith. They had put their trust in their ability to take hold of God, not God's ability to take hold of them. And they measured their security by their obedience. As long as they weren't doing bad things, they were okay. And as a result, they lacked passion. They, they lacked humility. They lack joy. And as I plead with them to see the beauty of the grace of God, they would look at me like I was an alien. They didn't understand that they were saved by grace through faith. They thought they were saved by commitment plus obedience. 
Faith isn't something we do for God. It isn't a commitment of your will to take hold of God. It's not working up the right emotional response to God. It's not something you need to do good enough or, or, or do... Uh, it's not an exercise of your mind where you have to know all the true things about God. The, the essence of faith is a response of trust to the incredible message of what God has done for you. It's not a call for you to do something to take hold of God. It is, it is a response of trust in which we lean into what God has done to take hold of us. Faith is a response of trust to a beautiful message and a beautiful messenger. Faith looks at Jesus who died on the cross and rose from the tomb and says, I trust Him. I trust what He did. How can we do that, right? He lived 2,000 years ago. How am, I, how am I supposed to trust? And I know this is a legitimate challenge for many of my unbelieving friends. They're like, Steve, come on, man. Like, like you're talking about ancient history here, right? This is like 2,000 years ago. Like, that just kind of sounds like you're asking me to take a step of blind faith, like you're asking me to step on the ledge of a cliff and, and in the darkness jump into the fog. Yeah. Yeah. Here's the thing. Faith... Faith always requires a first step of trust. In fact, faith always requires the next step of trust. (laughs) To live by faith means to be continually taking the next step of trust. Yeah, but Steve, I don't think I can have that kind of faith. Yeah, you already do. We all live by faith. The question is, what do we put our faith in? We're all moving forward with an assumption of of, of how this whole life works and what makes it right and what will make us right. See, the issue isn't whether or not you're going to live your life by faith. The issue is where you're going to place your faith. You're going to place your faith in your works. Your religious works, your good works, your humanitarian works, your recycling works, your, your, your works to combat the, the, the injustices of the world. Are you going to put your faith in, in um, your goodness? Are you going to put your faith in, in, in the fact that there is no God? That itself is a, a leap of faith. Now the evidence points to it. Evolution's a fact. Really? Evolution is science, you're right. But the last time I checked, there were still no missing links. (laughs) Huge gaps with no evidence. You have to fill those gaps with faith, right? That's why Stephen Jay Gould came up with the theory of punctuated equilibrium, right? This idea that evolution occurred in sudden spurts, so sudden that there were no records left. That's a statement of faith. You're going to have faith. The question is, what are you going to have faith in. You're going to take a step of faith. The question is, who are you going to trust when you take that step? Imagine yourself on that cliff again. God doesn't ask you to jump into the darkness and the mist on your own. He went ahead of you. Right? You were led to that cliff, and then Jesus jumped into the fog. And then a voice calls back, follow me. 
take the leap. And we may respond, you know, like, I don't see you. But his response is always the same, I see you. That's the essence of faith. It's trust. And we're going to put our faith in what we think is worthy of our trust. And this incredible message of a Savior who is willing to become the ransom price of my sin. A God like no other God I've ever seen described in all of world history. A God who doesn't demand that we work our way up to Him, but a God who came down to us. That is a God I find so ridiculously unbelievable I have to believe. A God who at His very heart is driven by love and in His very expression is manifest in righteousness. A God who invites me to be loved. I believe love is at the center of the universe. And I believe all of our deepest cravings are designed to find their fulfillment in Him. There's nothing that makes sense of this world outside of that to me. And that that love would put on flesh and live the life I should have lived and die the death I deserve to die and rise again so I could be covered in His righteousness is an invitation too good to resist. He's inviting us to trust in Him instead of ourselves, to leave our self-effort and our self-improvement, to leave our self-salvation projects and throw ourselves completely on grace. Faith. Faith is a response of trust to the one that we deem trustworthy. Faith is a response to love that says, I am humbled by that love and I take joy in the one who gives it. We are saved by grace through faith. This is why it's important to understand prepositions. English teacher speaking here. You're saved by grace, not by your faith. Your faith doesn't save you. It's the grace that saves you. You're saved by grace through faith. It is grace that saves us. Our faith is simply the necessary response to that grace that allows us to come back into relationship with the God we've rejected. And if you miss that, you're going to be tempted to put your faith in your faith, put your faith in your obedience, put faith in your knowledge. But you do know you bring nothing to your salvation but your sin, right? And so as you come, all you can do is receive. And when you receive grace by faith, you walk away with nothing but His righteousness, which is everything. I've been criticized for talking too much about grace. Steve, when are you going to stop talking about the gospel and, and start talking about obedience? When are you going to stop talking about grace and start talking about how we need to, you know, be, be obedient? Don't you have to obey? I mean, Steve, what happens if somebody says they believe, but then they walk in a life of disobedience? Listen, if there's a problem with someone's faith, the only way to address that problem is with more grace. You don't fix a faulty faith by adding works of obedience. You don't fix a faulty faith by putting on a weight of self-improvement. The only way to fix a faulty faith is to provoke it with a fresh outpouring of grace 
that that faith might grow and be a genuine response of trust and love. You're not going to fix someone's faith by adding fear or works or shame. That will kill the very faith you're trying to fix. It will turn them into someone driven by pride and pretending and performing. Obedience. Listen, y'all, obedience is the fruit of faith. It absolutely is the fruit of faith. If there is a true root of faith, it will lead to a genuine expression of obedience to Christ. It will. Because faith always follows the one that it trusts. We can't call ourselves followers of Christ if we're not following the Christ that we claim to trust, right? This is not a transaction whereby we simply say the right words, take hold of the right benefit, and then go live our lives in a way that is devoid of the very trust that that faith demands. When we feel the warmth of His love, we will move toward it. We will yield to it. We will submit to it in joy. But you are not saved by that obedience. In fact, salvation comes when you realize you can't obey. That God, in fact, has done it all. He has paid the price, defeated your enemy, removed your guilt, removed your shame. You are saved by God's gratuitous grace. You are not more secure because you are more obedient. You are not more valued or more loved because you are better at performing. If you are a follower of Christ, if you have trusted in this work, you are already clothed with the very righteousness of Christ, the full obedience of Christ. That alone is what qualifies you to enter once again into relationship with God. Not your obedience for God, but Christ's obedience on your behalf. It is only by being convinced, assured, by having faith, that we realize our complete helplessness is the very thing that we bring to God and find it clothed with His complete righteousness to come in helplessness and complete vulnerability requires the courage of faith to stand before God in our naked unrighteousness and say I have nothing but I trust that you give everything you died and you rose again so I could receive what I could never earn Amy Carmichael said, God delights to meet the faith of one who looks up to him and says, Lord, you know that I cannot do this, but I believe you can. This is the scandal of grace. Righteousness isn't the reward for the devout or the dedicated. It is the gift of God to the destitute, the degraded, the downcast, and the outcast. I've been reading a book by Brennan Manning came out like 30 years ago, so I'm a little overdue, uh, called The Ragamuffin Gospel, but I finally picked it up and read it. Um, it's an oldie but a goodie. I want to read you a quote from it because it was provocative to my heart. He says, because salvation is by grace through faith, I believe that among the countless number of people standing in front of the throne and in front of the Lamb, dressed in the white robes and holding palms in their hands, he's describing 
the scene from Revelation 7-9. I shall see the prostitute from the Kit Kat Ranch in Carson City, Nevada, who tearfully told me that she could find no other employment to support her two-year-old son. I shall see the woman who had an abortion and is haunted by guilt and remorse but did the best she could faced by grueling alternatives. The businessman besieged with debt who sold his integrity in a series of desperate transactions. The insecure clergyman addicted to being liked who never challenged his people from the pulpit and longed for unconditional love. The sexually abused teen molested by his father and now selling his body on the street who as he falls asleep each night after his last trick, whispers the name of God that he learned in Sunday school. But how can that be, we ask. And then the voice says, they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. They are there. And there we are. The multitude who so wanted to be faithful, who at times got defeated, soiled by life, and bested by trials, wearing the bloodied garments of life's tribulations, but through it all, clung to faith. My friends, if this is not good news to you, you have never understood the gospel of grace. All have sinned and are lacking the glory of God. And are justified, declared righteous by the gratuitous grace of God through faith for all who would believe. I want to close with, um, we're going to do something weird. Um, And if you trust me enough, follow me in it. And if not, pretend like it. but what I want you to do is, is I want you to just close your eyes and lower your head. And I know that's a very churchy thing to do. But uh, close your eyes, lower your head. In Luke 7, um, we are told about a woman who breaks into a meal while Jesus is eating with the Pharisees. So he's surrounded by these very, very righteous people, these very, very devout people, these people that have earned much respect in the community, and she is a sinner. And she runs to his feet, and her tears are pouring out on his feet, and she anoints his feet, and she takes her hair, and she scrubs his feet. And then she looks up into his eyes, and for a moment, I want you to be her. What is your greatest point of shame? What is it that makes you a sinner? What is it that you desperately don't want exposed to God? Let it fall like tears onto his feet. And then look up into his face and what do you see? Because he looked at her and he said, Your sins are forgiven. And there was nothing but love and joy in his eyes. Sit in that as we move into our time of reflection. And allow the Lord to meet you there. 
We'll share communion in a moment.